Your stories don't define you. How you tell them will. Hi, I'm Sarah Elkins, your host and chief storymaker of Elkins Consulting. Many of my clients reach out to me because they're in transition. Their children are hitting milestone ages. They want more from their work. They're hitting a big number birthday. And they want to develop clarity about their natural strengths, what their next adventure might look like. In this series, you'll hear me ask my guests questions to dig deeply into the stories that shaped their lives, stories that uncover patterns and may unveil insights into dissatisfaction and also where their strengths lie and where they found and continue to find joy. This podcast's intention is to have listeners think of their own related stories and how they tell them, discovering the internal messages that are limiting their success and discovering how to shift their stories so they become positive life lessons to move them forward. If you're curious about what it would be like to work with me, visit elkinsconsulting.com and schedule a one-time 90-minute StrengthsFinder session. Well, what a relief to finally get to have this guest on my podcast. We've been kind of missing each other and messing up our own schedules so that we couldn't meet and we finally get to meet. Welcome to Kendria County, um, who lives in Maryland and is an amazing human. You'll see as we talk, I'm not going to introduce her in terms of what she does because you're going to hear it straight from her. But for our listeners, you are in for such a treat today. Thank you so much for joining us, Kendria. Thank you very much for having me. It's great to be here with you, Sarah. Um, Thank you. So I always ask my guests to share something about themselves that most people don't know about them at the beginning of this conversation. And it helps just kind of set the, the tone and the stage for people to hear a little bit more about who you really are and what's important to you. So what do you think? Do you have something to share with us? I do. I do. And I thought long and hard about this, honestly. And one of the things that came to mind first is, you know, most people know me as someone who certainly, you know, has the the gift of gab and I love to talk. But one thing that most people don't know is that I am pretty shy when it comes to public speaking. Oftentimes, um, it's something that has probably been there for me quite for quite a while. But it's something I always try to to push through, uh, even though just being an extrovert. But that is something sometimes that uh, most people don't know. I hear that. I hear that. And you know, what's funny is um, I just, somebody just asked me what I would share. And I, and I said, well, I used to be really, really shy. I was, I love to talk. And if I was with the right people, I would talk like crazy, but up until probably middle undergrad. So I was probably about 20 when I finally realized that I, I didn't like being shy. So I changed it. So I love that you just shared that. And it doesn't really surprise me because I think people who have real purpose in their words, the people who find it really inspiring and meaningful, what they're sharing with others have a tendency to be a little more self-conscious because it's so important to them. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. And I can relate to a lot of what you just said. You know, growing up, I was certainly more of an introverted person, I would say. Um, I was very careful with the words that I chose. And I think once I got to high school, there were oftentimes where I felt like being more quiet. There were things that I wanted to say, but I just didn't feel comfortable saying because I wasn't always comfortable in my skin, own skin growing up. And so 
once I kind of got to high school, I was able to take advantage of more of learning more about myself and getting in touch with myself. And as I started to to do that and to appreciate the things about myself uh, that, you know, for many years, I didn't always necessarily care for. So the more I got in touch with who I am and the things that I valued, I started to feel more confident in myself. And that gave me more confidence to use my voice. And so I've just continued to do that. There are times, like I said, where I still get, get nervous speaking, but I do feel a lot more confident that even though sometimes I may be nervous in those moments, I'm still comfortable sharing the things that I do get to share. Exactly. Exactly. I think that's common for people who, when when they speak, it's really from the heart. It's so important to them that you, you get kind of self-conscious, confident, but still that self-conscious, I want to make sure it's the best it can be for my audience. Yes, absolutely. Right? Absolutely. And I think the more that I've I've continued to grow over time and you know particularly with the career that I'm in you know getting started in the the field of of human resources you know there's certainly that first part the human you know you certainly have to interact and engage in a lot of ways and so that's really also helped me as well to kind of be more confident in some of the things that I share but also just to to step into that voice a, a lot more mm. I have to say I'm so impressed that you said that you started this in high school because I think I was 40 <laughs> before I started really getting comfortable in my skin. I mean, I was always confident, but that is not the same thing as being comfortable in your skin. And um, so the fact that you said that it started kind of in high school, was that a particular activity that you got into? Did you get into performing arts, speech and debate, athletics? What was it that you think kind of triggered that realization that you liked aspects of yourself that you used to be more self-conscious about? Um, to be honest, it was it wasn't so much activities. It was actually some of the uh, the challenges and the traumas that I had gone through. Um, you know, early on in 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 my high school career, I had experienced quite a bit of loss in my family over a short period of time, and during that time it really became apparent to me how precious life was, and I wanted to really make sure that, I was living out the values that I said that I possessed. And so it really was for me early on starting to really realize how precious life was and how short it can be for, for so many people. And so it really was an opportunity for me to say, given how short life is, you know, what are some things that, you know, I want to do differently? You know, it started to really kind of get my mind going and racing. And there was just really one day I was in high school, I was sitting in class. I think it was probably the middle of the day. And one of my best friends, she was in another class down the hall. And I was frequently not in my own classroom. I was always in someone else's, you know, connecting with other people. And it was shortly before class started. And she just came up to me that day and said that, you know, she just really appreciated having me in her life. And in that moment, I went back to my class. And as I was sitting there, I said to myself, you know, she appreciates me for who I am. And it was important for me to also kind of look in myself and to say, there's some really key things about myself that maybe she sees that I haven't always looked at, you know, as closely. And so it really kind of set something off within me to, to sit back and to really reflect and to really know that, again, coupled with some of the things that I had been through, it was really important for me to, to see myself, you know, for who I was and a lot of the traits and qualities that from time to time I had overlooked, but it really helped to kind of set me on that path of really loving myself and being confident in who I was. And that really just kind of started the path. I wasn't, it wasn't perfect in high school. You know, there was a still the, there perfection. Yes, I think it exists. <laughs> no, not at all. Absolutely. And as I continue to, of course, grow, you know, I've, I've continued to, to lean into that a bit more, but my journey started in, in high school. It certainly didn't end there. And it's still <laughs> Good. <laughs> there are people who do that. They kind of end in high school. They they peak there and it, it makes me really sad. But 
Kendria, I just got those chills up on the back of my neck. The, the hairs rose as soon as you said that your friend had come to you and said, I just really appreciate having you in my life because I don't think we tell each other that often enough and certainly not at that age. Tell me more about this woman. Yes. Um, well, she was one of my uh, my good friends in, in high school. Um, we started becoming friends kind of early on in, in high school and um, we were in a, the same class. And so that's, you know, certainly how you, you, you kind of meet in, 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 you know, your school years. It's you're often in the same class or an activity or they're in your neighborhood or something along those lines. And she was in, you know, my class. And I was at the time, you know, I was I've always been someone who is very um, gregarious. And so I always love to, to make jokes. And so I was, you know, we, we met freshman year. I was kind of making jokes. And so we just kind of connected. Uh, at the time. And after I had kind of made the joke, she just continued to laugh. And I, I I just wanted to continue making jokes. And so we just continued to kind of develop our, our bond and our friendship from that point forward. And, you know, uh, just that comment that she made and, you know, the relationship that we kind of had in high school really helped to kind of set me on the path towards really being able to, you know, own who I was and to really kind of gain more of that confidence, um, you know, in, in who I was. Wow. If each of us had one person that did that, the the right one person, because so many people can say something to us and we hear it, but we don't really hear it. And then it's that one person and we don't know why we don't know what it is that those words stuck versus all the other people who said something nice to us. That's, I, I just keep coming back to this idea that one person can, can make that difference in that moment. And who knows somebody else might've done it a little later or something might have triggered that consciousness another time but but it didn't that was when it happened uh, to me that's that's the magic of connection that's that's when our lives become so much more intertwined we don't even know it and what you're talking about is knowing in high school that you wanted your legacy to be something kind and powerful and have have that kind of impact. And then she modeled it. She's like, this is what that looks like. And you didn't even know that at the time, but this is what that looks like. And oh my gosh, I'm just kind of, I'm tearing up a little because I'm thinking about how, how hard it is to be in high school and to not have a friend that does that. So fast forward, you're, you're comfortable in your skin now so that our listeners have an idea of why we're talking about this. Can you describe just briefly what you do, maybe in the, in the context of a story of a recent client or experience that you had with your work? Yes, absolutely. Um, I have so many uh, unique experiences that I get to have, you know, each day with, with my clients. Um, but I'll just talk about one that I recently had a few weeks ago. I'm working with a client who recently implemented uh, some new uh, HR technology for their organization. They were previously using kind of paper-based, outdated kind of spreadsheets and a lot of manual processes to do their work. And they were transitioning to this new uh, technology called Workday. And so it was really going to transform their their business, their HR operations and their organization across. And I was meeting with her just to talk through working through some of the the technology and just understanding kind of the, the processes and how the system is set up and what are some ways to enhance the system and really just understanding, you know, sitting and talking with her to understand 
what were your processes before the system? You know, what were you all doing before then? And what is the experience that you all wanted to have with the system? So I really didn't focus so much on the system itself. I wanted to talk about the people that were using the system, the processes that they were using, the experience that they wanted to have. And while we were kind of having that conversation, we were doing a a video call and, you know, I could certainly see her face was kind of her eyes were kind of squinting and she was kind of turning her head to the side where I you know, think she was trying to understand the questions that I was asking. And toward the end of our conversation, she said, it's very, I, you know, I said to her, you know, do you have any questions or any feedback or anything else you want to discuss? And she said, yes, there's just something that's been kind of sitting with me this whole time is you really didn't ask me much about the system. And I've never had a conversation like that. Normally we talk, when I've talked with other people, they talk just about how this, what the system is and what it can do and what I'm supposed to do with it. They don't ever ask me about the experience I want to have with it. And so she was just very taken aback by that approach. And so I, with the work that I do is I do a lot of work with HR technology, but I don't like to lead with the technology. I like to lead with people first and the experience they want people to have with the technology. And so I spent a lot of time working with organizations that may not necessarily take that approach when it comes to technology, but after we have the conversations that we have and they understand the importance of their people and their ex- the experience people are going to have with the technology, the outcome is very different from when we maybe started initially the conversation, or maybe they have a different opinion that they had before they actually, you know, when they purchase the technology, their opinion has changed now that they have the technology because they're looking at it from a different viewpoint. I love that for so many reasons. And uh, so much popped into my head, like when I was implementing PeopleSoft back in the late 90s, and that was the goal of that product. And people took it totally the wrong direction. You know, the guy that designed it, he brought in all these HR people, the, the real people who were doing the work, they were doing the payroll, they were processing the benefits, they were um, onboarding and and helping people resign or leave. Um and he brought these people together to create the most streamlined processes for the people who were using the data, the people who were impacted by how simple or complex it was to sign up for benefits using this tool. And I, I loved that. And it just got lost over the years of PeopleSoft. It was so sad. So hearing you approach a workday implementation with a medium sized or large business is just so inspiring and um, I don't know, encouraging, you know, because I got so discouraged in that time because they it was all about the widgets, you know, what this can do, what that can do. And this field does this and this field does that. Like, yeah, but who's entering the data? And is it easy for them to enter the data? And whose job is this going to replace? Because that's what people want to know. How's my job going to change? And does this mean I'm working myself out of a job by implementing this software? And it sounds to me like those are the questions that you were addressing. Yes, yes, absolutely, absolutely. Because all of the questions and concerns that you've raised are questions and concerns that I've worked, that I've heard from my clients. But they're also concerns that I had when I was actually on the customer side when it came to working with technology. You know, I first started my career um, with United States Coast Guard. And my very first project there that I got assigned to was working on implementing a new time and attendance system there. And the project had been in the works for quite some time before I had started. But when I, you know, finally joined and they said, you know, we need your help to kind of get this off the ground, um, just to kind of get the implementation across the finish line, um, I was very excited. um, And I was, you know, really, you know, eager since it was one of my first opportunities. And we were implementing the new system in uh, August of 2005. 
And during the same time that we were implementing, we were implementing in the same very pay period that Hurricane Katrina was hitting. And our payroll provider was actually located in New Orleans. And so they were evacuating while we were trying to figure out how are we going to get this technology and this system implemented? So I had a very interesting start to my career, to say the least. Um, I was actually, we were really kind of doing a scramble at that time to figure out what were we going to do? And so we had to implement some emergency procedures and things to get that project in and across the line. And there was a lot of cleanup that we had to do in that at that time. But a lot of the decisions that were made at that time while we were making that transition was focusing on the people. And so there was a lot of cleanup work on the back end, but we said we would rather do this cleanup on the back end than adversely impact people on the front end who were trying to evacuate at our payroll provider. So that was really kind of one of my first experiences working with technology, (laughs) but prioritizing people first. And so I've had a lot of opportunities since then where the technology kind of came first, but given that that was my very first experience working with technology, it's always something that I've carried with me and continue to carry forward into my business today. And it really played a, a pivotal moment in, in my career and kind of how I approach things as I'm working with, with other, other clients. Oh my gosh. I love that. Was there a point when um, it was implemented and Katrina was kind of mellowing out where you had an opportunity to actually step back and go, oh my gosh, we just did this. How yes. amazing is that? <laughs> Tell me about that. Yes. We we had so many, so many moments like that. Um, there was a, a, a coworker of mine who I worked closely with on, on that project. And he and I were, were working long hours trying to do to ex- execute some of those workarounds that we were doing in, in process of, of not having, you know, things automated and stood up the way that we intended for them to be. And so we had just finished closing our second payroll. Uh, so it was about a month later and there was still a lot of work going on, but we really sat back and said, we really just got through that. Once we made sure that the final button was pushed and that the final check went out the door, we kind of sat back and just had a moment to say, just to breathe a sigh of relief. <laughs> we, we there was a lot more coming, but just to get that first, those first couple ones out of the mm-hmm. way, it really was an accomplishment that you know we really took pride in. The organization certainly took pride in, and it was just a really pivotal moment for us. But we we really we really celebrated that moment. Did, uh, first, where were you located at that time? Were you in Maryland? I was at, we were in Washington, D.C. at the time. Oh, okay. And then um, was there an individual that that impacted that you remember that story where it was? So I'm asking this because I'm working with a housing organization right now. One of the people on the board is so overwhelmed at the enormity of the housing issues that he he's like, we can't fix these problems. We can't fix these problems. I said, no, but to that family that you just housed over there, those two kids and that mom, um, they, they may be a drop in the bucket in terms of the enormity of the problem, but to them, their lives have changed for the better. And that's what we're looking at. So yes. I'm curious if there's like a particular person that you went, okay, this is this is why we're doing it this way. Yes, there it's 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 there is one particular person, but I will say there was was actually several thousand because without what we did no one would have gotten paid. And so some of the experiences with people that I've worked with there, you know, while I was also working there, I was responsible for administering their voluntary leave transfer program, which is basically a program where employees can donate time to others that are afflicted by medical emergencies. And so sometimes people don't always have time off to cover needing to go to those appointments or being able to take care of paying for certain prescriptions or being able to take care of their personal needs. So to be able to step back and say that, 
we were able to make sure that payroll was run so that everyone could continue to get paid. But also some of those people that really relied on that money were able to do the things they needed to do. So in that moment, we really just sat back and thought about all the families that, you know, we were able to help with making sure that payroll continued to run. And of course, on the the front end, people just know that their paychecks continued to come in and money continued to, you know, they were able to go on with business as usual. But behind the scenes, we knew that we were sitting there and just kind of thinking through and, you know, staying up late at night, trying to make sure that people were going to get paid and figuring out what was going to happen or, or what was going on. So there was a lot of churn behind the scenes, but just knowing that we were able to allow people to not necessarily feel that impact right off the bat was something that was very, very important to, to me. Which would have been understandable in those circumstances. Like they, they might be frustrated and angry, but it could be understandable if payroll was being evacuated from their location because of the, yeah, a hurricane. So that's, wow. That, that's just, that's such a good story. There's so much meat in there. <laughs> I was kind of thinking through, I'd like to move past that into something more current, but at the same time, I'm just so kind of overwhelmed by that story. So tell me, um, we before we hit record, we were talking about commutes and you were telling me that at one point, I don't know what year this was, if it was recent, for a full year, you were making a big triangle in the DC area, um, working, uh, going to school in Baltimore, working in, was it DC? Yes. And then living in Maryland off near Fort Washington. Yes. Maryland. Yes. Okay. Yes. That's for those of you not familiar with that region, that is like, it's kind of like, the worst traffic area that you could possibly even imagine. The DC area is bad anyway, but it's kind of like LA in some ways. You just kind of live with it. But I remember even 66 coming from the district into Northern Virginia. It was, I think we had 10 miles to go and it took us two and a half hours one time. And that's common. So for you to do this triangle, this loop every day for a year, you must be one ambitious and resilient woman. So I'd like to hear a little bit more about why you were doing that. And then what, what made you go, okay, I can't keep doing this. I'm going to have to switch gears and do school a different way. Yes. Yes. So that, uh, that triangle that you, you mentioned, thinking back about it, it, it makes me smile, chuckle. You know, I go through the full range of emotions. Cringe. But- probably a a good word, but um, during that, that time I would, you know, get up around, you know, six o'clock in the morning and start my commute uh, from, you know, upper Marlboro, Maryland into, to DC. And so at that time in the morning, it's about a 35, 40 minute commute, which is on the better end of, of doing a commute. And then I would actually during that time, finish working in DC in the evening. And then I would drive from DC to Baltimore. And that drive from DC to Baltimore at uh, in the evening, rush hour. rush hour traffic is a uh, is definitely a time where um, you get to do a lot of lot of self reflection and thinking in the car and <laughs> audiobooks and all of those things. So there was a long commute that I would have to go to uh, to get to Baltimore, where I was going to the University of Maryland, Baltimore County, and I would go to evening classes there. Class would let out about ten thirty. And then I would make the commute home, which was about another hour and a half. So I was getting home about midnight. So my day would run from 6 a.m. until midnight just to get just leaving the house to, to returning to, to the house. And then I would have to certainly do homework. And um, I was what going was through the grad school at the time. Um, it was I was grad doing, school. 
Yes, yes. I was doing a master's in applied sociology at the time. And that was a, a, a very, very taxing program for sure. So I would get home at midnight and I would start doing my work. And I was certainly much younger at the time. So I had a lot more energy to, to be able to do that. And so I would do my homework and then I would probably go to bed around two and then I would wake up and do it all over again for an entire year. And as I was doing that, um, in the beginning, it was, you know, very, it was invigorating because I was, you know, I, I saw the progress and the degree that I was, you know, moving towards. And I was really drawn to the material that I was learning. And so that also is a big draw of why I did it for for so long. And as the the year kind of came to a close, midway through, I had actually gotten to uh, rescued two dogs, two puppies from a shelter. And so that commute, I also had to sprinkle in during the day, sometimes leaving work in the middle of the day from DC to go back to Upper Marlboro to let them out, come back to work in DC and then go to Baltimore <laughs> to, to then return home. So that part didn't last very long at all. So then I certainly shifted and said, I need to make some other arrangements as far as what I was going to do. And so during that time, I still prioritized my education, but I just shifted in to where I was going to school and the program that I was actually in. And so I ended up shifting from applied sociology to public administration. Since I was doing human resources work for the federal government at the time, there was a natural intersection there. And so I felt really connected to that material that I was learning as well. So I didn't feel as if, even though I was changing or transitioning programs, that I lost anything. I actually felt like I gained something because I was able to really apply more directly day to day a lot of the things that I was learning. And so the commute was probably about half that afterwards, mm, which nice. was a, a huge time saver, but, and it gave me more energy to certainly do some of the things that I needed to do, but I still felt connected to the, the things that I was learning and I could directly apply it. And I've continued to apply that, you know, in the, the work that I do now as well. Mm -hmm. Oh, that makes sense. That makes so much sense. And I was so curious. And I was going to ask when you were telling me about this commute, how long did you do that commute? Because that's crazy. But it's it's interesting how we choose what we want to do. And nothing's going to get in our way once we've decided what we want to do. And when you did it take you another full year to finish? I'm, I'm sure some of the credits transferred, but did you finish in the two years that usually grad programs take? It took me another uh, five months, but I was able to, to finish, um, oh, which is still a, a pretty good time frame to, yes. to get everything done in. And uh, I, I certainly feel that it, it took me a, a bit of additional time, but I do actually feel like it ended up taking me less time <laughs> just because yes. had I stayed doing that commute, there, there certainly would have been a, a shift in how much I took on or yes. uh, what that program actually ended up looking like. Yeah, that, that actual time, like physical clock ticking time specifically probably took you less time because of the commute. That's crazy to think about. And when you finished, I'm sure a lot of what you had already done in the advanced sociology work you were doing also has to have played a role in your ability and um, connections of the material across what you were doing in the workplace, what you were doing specifically uh, as far as your implementations that you were doing in HR, I'm sure it all connected. Was there a moment where you um, you realized that all of this was connecting and you were in exactly the right place? Yes, there, there was. I was working at the time doing um, still in HR 
working for the United States Coast Guard. I was there for about eight years. And about halfway into my time there, um, while I was, you know, working, still doing, working in systems, I was uh, managing the voluntary leave transfer program with the leave donation program that I mentioned. And while working that program, I was responsible for really making sure that employees that needed time off were able to, you know, get the time off they needed and uh, to facilitate the process of employees donating time to one another. And there was one particular person that was in the program that he'd been in there, he was dealing with leukemia. And so he had been in the program for about, about six months. And we worked quite frequently together. And I would, you know, he would say, hey, you know, I'm in need of, you know, X, Y, and Z. And I would, you know, help to, to execute that process. And one day he came to me and said that he was very grateful for the work that I had done. It was one day I was sitting at my desk. It was about maybe 4.30 in the afternoon. It had been a, a long week to, to say the least. And I got a phone call from him and it was good to hear his voice. And he said to me in the, the moment that he was able to, to get a paycheck that he needed this past week and that he was able to pay for some of the medication that he needed. And he said, without that, he doesn't know where he would have got it from. And in that moment, it, it really sat with me that the work that I did mattered. And the experience that I had gained up until this point and the focus that I had put on prioritizing people and understanding the bigger picture of society, but also the work that I was doing, it just, it sat with me and just made such an impact on me. And he and I continued to, to remain close for the next several months. And he did unfortunately, you know, succumb to, you know, the, the leukemia that he was, he was dealing with. But I've never forgotten him until this day and the impact that he's had on me and just the importance of connecting people to the work that we do and the, the impact that we can have on their lives is something that has stayed with me for, for many years. And it really continues to drive why I do what I do. But that moment has stayed with me since then. Mm. Yeah, that's the story. <laughs> It's taking me a second. <laughs> I'm processing because I think so many of us forget that potential impact or even the, the impact that we've had in the past in everyday interactions, even if you're not in HR. Um, my friend Heather Younger has a whole program around caring leadership. And it's not just about people who are in a position of leadership or have any kind of authority, but that guy was caring for you as much as you were caring for him, just simply by telling you that you had had that impact on him. And I think this is a lesson for all of us everywhere we are, as much as we often feel helpless because of the enormity of the problems we're facing globally. I mean, globally, unfortunately, that it's one person at a time or five people at a time, or if you're a teacher, you're 12 to 25 students at a time. It's powerful what we can do for each other. And that's what we have to hold on to. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. So to come full circle on this conversation, I'd love for you to um, tell our audience what you do, how to get a hold of you, and what you want for as the next iteration of your business continues to evolve, what what can we do to support your amazing work? Yes, 
Well, um, I am the you know CEO and owner of Abnormal Logic. We are a consulting firm that focuses on uh, providing uh, HR change and transformation support to businesses through the lens of people, processes, and technology. And so, you know, people can get in touch with me by certainly finding me on LinkedIn. I'm, I'm very active there. They can also visit our website, Abnormal Logic, all one word, abnormallogic.com. And one thing that I have in hope for, for others is to, and to continue helping me with the work that I'm trying to do is to continue carrying forward a, a similar message, you know, focusing on people and focusing on as a lot of things that you just touched on is understanding that we have impact on other people. Sometimes it may not feel like we do, but sometimes we can have a profound impact on others that we may not even realize. And so I just, you know, urge people to continue leaning into, you know, who they are and kindness and continuing to show that to other people. Sometimes we may not always feel like, you know, that some people deserve it or in situations we may not always feel that way, but understand that, you know, there are a lot of things that we all go through and a lot of things that people deal with, but continuing to put people first, put other people first is, is going to help a long, us go a long way, but it will certainly help to continue carrying forward the message that I certainly love to, to carry forward. Um, we certainly love to carry forward at Abnormal Logic, and I certainly, you know, encourage others to do the same in their day-to-day, you know, whether you're a, you know, a, a business owner or, you know, you're not, you know, we all have profound impact no matter who we are, no matter where we are, or no matter what we're doing. Perfect. I love this. And for our listeners, you didn't have to write any of that down. We will have all of Kendria's uh, contact information in the show notes associated with this podcast episode at elkinsconsulting.com. Kendria, thank you so much for this wonderful, thoughtful, emotionally charged conversation. You're welcome. Thank you, Sarah. I appreciate you. Are you ready to start your story portfolio? so you have the right story ready to share when the opportunity presents itself? When you're ready to get started, my book, Your Stories Don't Define You, How You Tell Them Will, is available in all the regular places, and the audiobook version is available on Google Play and on my website, elkinsconsulting.com. As a special bonus for listeners, the audiobook includes two songs recorded by my band, Spare Change, in my living room in Montana. Also on my website is a free podcast interview checklist. It's available to download to make sure you make the most out of your next podcast interview. If you enjoyed this podcast, please feel free to rate the podcast and leave a review and let me know that you've done it so I can thank you properly. Thank you. Thank you.